0: This week on Holics, we're kicking the show off with a recap of the 2019 Oscars with special guest Corey Woodruff. I think it lacked a bit of an identity. But that's not all. We're also doing our main review for Greta, a new thriller from director Neil Jordan starring Chloe Grace Moretz and Isabelle Huppert.
1: And this is where I I feel you guys are going to start bringing out your pitchforks.
0: We're also covering a whole lot of extra films, including Apollo 11, which just hit limited release in IMAX, Gaspar Noe's new film, Climax, and Chiwetel Ejiofor's directorial debut, which he also stars in, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, now streaming on Netflix. I got to say, the real star of the film, it's not Ejiofor. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He also reviews films for The Playlist, Cut print Film. Hey, you guys. And of course, cinemaholics.com. It is Will Ashton. Hello. And I am the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called The Pixar Theory. And I read about film for Adam Insider, relevant magazine, the young folks in Cinemaholics. I am John Negroni. We have a guest this week who has appeared on one of our recent bonus episodes, but he's back for the main show. Corey Woodruff, you passed your audition. Congratulations.
2: Hey, I will take it. I'm glad that my uh, that I passed with flying colors.
0: You did, you did well. We had a great conversation about the kid who would be king. The mm-hmm. film I think came out in January, and you know we can actually mention that film flopped pretty badly, even oh, in the UK. Me. Very sad oh. to to hear that. Yeesh. I guess you're you're a bad luck charm, Corey. If we talk about, I, am,
2: so I apologize to the filmmakers of today's show. Because <laughs> That's right. Your box office numbers are not going to be good.
0: All uh, right. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com. You can also write into the show anytime by emailing us, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. You can also support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com cinemaholics. We have a ton of off topics to get to. Later in the show, we will be talking about Greta, Apollo 11, Climax, and The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. A lot of films that not all of us watch, but I think Greta is the one thing that all three of us saw, but it's kind of a grab bag episode, a lot of different topics, we're not going to be spending too much time on any one thing. So we should just get these off topics taken care of. The first thing we have is an announcement, our anniversary series extra milestone kicked off this past week. It was a blast. Will Ashton, myself, and Sam Nolan talked about It Happened One Night, which just celebrated its 85th anniversary. And I got to say, Will, I, I feel like that was it was a big success. We had a really fun conversation. And I think the listeners really got a kick out of us talking about an older film for once. Corey, have you seen this one, It Happened One Night?
2: No, that is one of the screwball comedies I'm missing, but I do really want to watch it.
0: You should listen to our episode. It's going to get you right in the mood to go check it out. Definitely. I will show. indeed.
2: That sounds like a fascinating series.
0: It's pretty fun. And we'll be doing the next one next month. Uh, I think we're going to be celebrating another classic film, but we'll keep you all posted on that. Will Ashen, you have been all over the podcast networks and culture spheres. I mean, you were on what, two podcasts in addition to two episodes of Cinemaholics this week. Tell the listeners about it.
1: Yeah. I was was talking about this off the air. It was, quite a week for me last week for podcasting because I ended up being in four different episodes. So the ones you're talking about, though, are I got a chance to be in um, Robert Yannis Jr.'s podcast, Crooked Table. Uh, You might remember Robert from, um, let's see, he he was on Atomic Blonde, Transformers the last uh, Yeah, basically all three or four episodes that I did not appear on, not by choice, just (laughs) by happenstance. So We kind of got a chance to joke about that and all that. But, um, yeah, we talked about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is my favorite film. And uh, I'm really happy with that episode turned out. I hope people check it out and um, you get to hear. If you're curious why that movie means so much to me and why I think it has such an iconic place in film history. And then the second episode is just uh, the second episode of my podcast, A Ogre Totes Ogre. Uh, We were joined by my good friend, Emily Betts, and we got to talk about, yet again, Garfield, the movie. So I hope people check those out and uh, let me know what you think if you do.
0: Yeah. For those of you who still don't know, for some reason, It Ain't Ogre tilt Ogre is Will's podcast with Matt Serafini and Chris Sheridan, where they talk about one movie every month for a year. They did Shrek the first year, Cat in the Hat the Mm -hmm. second and this year is Garfield the movie, which you just did your second episode. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet, but I did finish your Willy Wonka episode. And okay. it was a really nice conversation. It was great to hear you talk really positively about a movie uh, in that oh, yeah. way, in that very giddy way. <laughs> I'm keeping that in mind, Will for when we talk about Greta. I was like, I mean, I can't wait for you to do the same thing with that film.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, oh, also, guys,
0: uh, the Oscars happened. I don't know if you if you knew this, but... The Oscars mm-hmm. for 2019 happened this past Sunday, and we we did our episode with uh, Sam Nolan about How to Train Your Dragon in the Hidden World right before the Oscars last Sunday, so we didn't talk about who won. But let's do a quick little recap. I think all of us are familiar with the winners. Big winners mm-hmm. of the night were the favorite. You know, it got nominated for, what, 10 awards, and it won all of them, right? That's what happened last Sunday?
1: Oh, John! I think you might have seen a different telecast.
0: <laughs>
1: That's right, he Green Book. The favorite <laughs>
0: Green yeah. Book won Best Picture in kind of a a stunning—I don't want to say upset, but disappointment. Let's put it that way. It, mm-hmm. it beat out Black Klansman, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favourites, Roma, A Star Is Born, and Vice. Alfonso Cuaron took Best Director. And probably one of my favorite surprises and one of the few surprises actually was Olivia Coleman did win best actress mm-hmm. in a leading role for the favorite. Now I'm curious, Corey, do you do any Oscar predictions? Like, did you have like a bracket or anything like that?
2: Oh, I do. I am an Oscar nerd through and through. This is oh, like one great of to the hear. biggest, yeah, this is one of the big uh, subcultures of film that I push all, all my chips in on, so to speak. But well, how'd you this year this was year? weird. Um... I don't think I did super, super great, but this was one of those years where I'm like, I don't really mind that because it just felt like three or four things could have won in any given category except for just a handful. So I was kind of like, well, if I do okay, I'll do okay. Like I called, I got all the big categories right except for actress. I and mean, I figured Green Book would win. I figured that. Um, I thought The Close would have gotten actress for The Wife, but I think Coleman winning was much more fitting for the actual performance. So I was I was happy to be wrong in some cases.
0: Right, yeah. I got most of the major ones, uh, except for I didn't guess Green Book. I, I was pretty adamant on the Roma still winning, even though I knew the the, the writing was on the wall or so it were. But one of the ones, yeah, Remy Malek, I think a lot of us called that for Bohemian Rhapsody, him getting best actor. But Will, I I mean, I know, you know, you you weren't the biggest fan of Green Book. I know you really didn't like Bohemian Rhapsody. How how did you walk away from this Oscar season? Because, you know, it really celebrated two films that you and I Uh definitely were not the biggest fans of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... Like you were saying earlier, I kind of expected it. I mean, not that I was hoping for it or that um, I wasn't willing to champion upset, but uh, I knew, like, with the PGA win back in January, that it had a better than decent chance of winning Best Picture, and then when it won Best Original Screenplay, there's pretty much a long history of films that win uh, Best Picture usually also win Best uh, Screenplay. So it was at that point it had to be between. Green Book and Black Klansman, and it seemed more likely that Green Book would win, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I I mean, there's a lot of ways you can look at it. I don't know if there's a simple answer for Green Book winning. It's either, like, really simple or extremely complex. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure which one it is. I I feel like there's, like, some kind of um, weirdly bipartisan thing with it, where some people might have thought of it being, like, the, like, middle-of-the-ground film where... Other films that were nominated were rather challenging, I guess, and maybe they weren't ready for, say, a superhero movie winning with Black Panther or, um, I guess, I don't know, maybe the favorite was a little too out of the box for their taste. It's hard to say for sure. But then I think about that and I also think like, well, if that's the case, if they wanted something that wasn't going to be politically divisive, then why Right. Yeah. Why would a star <laughs> <didn't mean>. <laughs> Um, I mean, I it, the funny
0: like, thing, too, is like A Star is Born was far more successful at the box office. Right. It was more culturally yeah. relevant. I mean, Green Book, it's like, yeah, it, it's a movie that a year from now, even. I mean, just imagine a year from now, not even a decade from now, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, that movie. I don't remember much about it.
1: Uh, with Green Book or a Star- With Green Book. Th- okay. And I was going to say, because I don't – I've been trying to figure this out and racking my brain about it. And I don't honestly know what happened with A Star is Born because, I mean – I'm on record with the podcast saying that at one point I was pretty certain that it was going well, to win Best Picture. And
0: I, I think, think the Academy came
1: out. In October. I think a lot
0: of people in the Academy have an issue with remakes. To be honest, I mean, not all the time. It's not a hard and fast rule, but I think in this case, they just didn't think Best Picture should go to a film that's so resembling of other films.
1: That Don't you sense. disrespect Barbara? Says Academy voter sixty nine. It's just like <laughs> what. why why is i don't know i mean again like okay and at the same time a
2: star is born doesn't deal with any political issues and most of our best picture winners of recent memory have had some sort of social issue that it champions and it makes me wonder that along with just the fact that it's a remake people just didn't feel like it was important enough
0: right and the film does
2: deal with addiction and you know depression and pretty pretty subtly ways that i think can really dig into you but it's just it's like i just look at all the best picture winners from
0: it could have come out yeah a star is born could have come out in 2015 you know it it didn't feel like a 2018 movie i guess to some Mm -hmm. people maybe whereas like the favorite did have like i think favorite should have won best picture i was out of all of these films nominated it was my favorite but the favorite was like you know, about class warfare. It, was, it had, you know, Brexit things in it. It had all kinds of, like, special issues, but people didn't really look at it that way. And then Green Book, which was, like, sort of political and important, but in a very vague way. I guess that's why a lot of people probably put it as their number two or their three. I doubt a lot of people had it as their favorite, but because of the preferential ballot, that kind of favors a lot of people putting Green Book, like you said, Will, in the middle.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, no, I think you guys are right. I think there is something about that, where it, it isn't really that challenging in any way. It just tackles something very, like you said, vaguely or bluntly. And it it's one of those films where it doesn't really say much of anything, but when people see it, they're entertained and they're amused by it, and then they can go like, oh, you know, like, it was also about something. But it's not really, <laughs> but like, they can feel that it is. And, I mean, that's like the more, I guess, like, optimistic look at it. I mean, there's also a theory that there are Academy voters who, like, kind of voted for it in spite because it's safe to say that the movie had no shortage of controversies going into its Best Picture win, and yeah. there might have been some voters who, who were like, "Hey, just don't vote for Green Book because you know, like, it's not that great of a film, or it has these controversies." And I guess some older Academy voters were like, who liked the film, were like, or felt like they shouldn't be told what to do, were like, "Well, don't tell me what to do. I'm gonna vote for it." And so, I mean, that's that's diving into controversy territory or like uh, conspiracy territory. I mean, so like I said, the the answer is either extremely complicated and a number of different factors. Maybe even the votes got split between the films that were nominated this year, because like we're talking about earlier, there are a lot of exceptional films and maybe just Green Book was just the one that kind of rose up for different reasons. But it's hard to know for sure.
0: Right. It probably just bubbled up to the top. And we should say it was a very positive ceremony all around. I personally enjoyed not having a host. I, I know some people are a little mixed on it and they missed having like a host throughout the whole thing, but it was like a lean three hour, 15 and 20 minute ceremony. And that's how I liked it. I don't know about you guys. And I was very happy to see a lot of these winners. Regina King did win for if bill street could oh, talk, yeah. got best supporting mm-hmm. actress. And I think she had one of the best speeches, if not the best. And I, when Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse won Best Animated Feature, I, I definitely was like, okay. The, no matter what happens later on in this ceremony, I can at least be happy with that. I could be happy with Ruth Carter finally winning for costume design. She won for Black Panther. I know a lot of people like when Black Panther was winning some of the technicals uh, that won like Best Production Design too. I think some people were being like, oh could black could this be the year i was like no 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 no. black panther is pulling like a mad max Fury road it's it's not going to mm-hmm. win best picture best picture is going to go to something that's more in the middle and it's kind of the same thing as in 2015 spotlight won that year you know it wasn't the revenant it wasn't mad max Fury road it was kind of the film that people had their two or their three and that's what kind of rose to the top and that's kind of the same thing that happened this year you know other controversies uh, be damned i suppose but were there yeah. anything else really stuck out to you guys about either the ceremony or some of these winners? There's definitely a lot we could talk about, and we don't have a ton of time to get to. But uh, anything stick out for you, Corey?
2: Yeah, you know, I think when you look at just one the show, I think it lacked a bit of an identity. And I think that's one of the things that frustrated me. It's that the pacing was just so ratatat, ratatat, tat It was fun to get to all the awards, but I just wish there was more of a just a celebratory nature of just film in general. I just, I just, I liked kind of the pomp and circumstance of some of those shows that would go for hours. Cause it's like, I'm putting my time apart to actually go celebrate the movies. And I think that the Kimmel shows got away from that in a really bad way because they would just get into these skits and it was like kind of a late night format where they were trying to go for comedy 24 seven. But I, I like just those random like tributes to old movies that they would do and like, Just, you know, and the montage was fine, but I don't know. I just felt like the fact that they didn't have a host, it went a lot better than I thought it would go from the show. It was lean. They got everything in with time, but I just would have enjoyed it. They put more of a preparatory process, I guess, of trying to make it, say something or mean something but considering all the mess this year i thought the show was relatively good in spite of it but i hope next year they do go back to a host they go back to some sort of a theme and you can mix that in with the fact that you want to get it in another three hours and want to get all the awards out but on the award side it was cool to see ludwig Gordonson win an oscar um he's been a heck of a moment with donald glover um one also grammy got record and song of the year so Just a phenomenal thing to see um, a guy like that who was, you know, seven, eight years ago doing music for Community and doing Donald Glover's like early, (laughs) early hip hop albums to to, like winning Grammys and Oscars. And his stuff in Creed was really good. And that really kind of hinted to me that he was going to be in movies and know how to make a really cool sound that we've not really heard before. So I thought that was one of my favorite ones of the night.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to what you were saying about the host stuff, one thing maybe that Made me like the night in general, in spite of like nobody bookending the the ceremony. Was that I like that they put some effort and some creativity into the people presenting the awards. Mm. You know, I, I had this moment where I was every time I was watching people come on stage and, and talk about the next award, there was always something fun or there, there was always something interesting about that dynamic. It's like, Oh, who's going to do this one? It's like, Oh, cool. You know, like there were little Easter eggs of like, Oh, they're together on stage because they were both in this movie and there, there were fun things like that. And I guess that was enough for me, but what, what about you? Will? I mean, are you kind of feeling the same way? Like, do you feel like there should be a host named Will Ashen with his tuxedo shirt getting on mm. stage and just guiding us along
1: on the the journey of the Oscars? Well, don't give away too much for next year, John. But um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I I know that this year for reasons um, relating to NBC or ABC, I mean, that they went to be like three hours and that like they're just like, you know, whatever happens, just try and make it three hours. So I feel like if it had to be between like showing all the uh, categories on television or like having celebratory montages or skits, I think the way they went was definitely the better of the two. Like, I think agreed. For me, I mean, if that's like, if they can't like have like a five hour extravaganza like we're used to having, I'm fine with having it being condensed and just like focusing on the meat and grits. Like, I don't, I don't really need the like I like the celebratory stuff. Like anybody who is a fan of cinema, I think kind of gets a little nostalgic about that stuff. But I understand that if we can't have like a what we're used to having, then we have to kind of settle. And for me, if like Corey was saying, like considering all the stuff that's going on leading up to the show, like every single like fumble from the academy i'm kind of impressed that they were able to put on a competent show in general yeah. so yeah i thought it was pretty good overall as we, far as the show itself goes
0: yeah were there any awards of course that that stuck out to you before we move on
1: um trying to think i mean we talked about the big ones um nothing's well, coming to winning. was pretty great oh yeah yeah oh yeah for spike lee yeah that was like that was probably my favorite moment was uh samuel jackson and Spike Lee kind of in, in the embrace and like yeah yeah clearly so enthusiastic about this win that was pretty great
0: yeah. And similarly, I mean, when Green Book won Best Original Screenplay, it was just like, wow, you know what, there's a screenplay that just, you know, it reminded me of when Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Editing. And it was just like, finally, like, you know, oh, yeah, that was game weird. recognizes game. And yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the actual, the screenplay for Green Book, but there were some really funny tweets where the, people were holding it up next to other screenplays from that were nominated. And it's, it's so sad. It's hilarious. But yeah, there, there were definitely some some interesting choices the Academy made this year.
1: Well, we'll see how great that screenplay was when we see um, Nick Vagalonga's uh, next film. That's amore. Oh um, man, a character named Patty Amore, and uh, <laughs> of wait. all the films
0: to do to, in his follow up, this is the one. And you know what? I, I, he's staying on brand.
1: And I so mean, yeah he would not be able to make that movie if he wasn't an Academy award winning screenwriter. Right. Like everyone else would be like laughing him out of town, but he's like, well, I mean, he has an Oscar. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. uh, yeah. But, Oh, I'll also gonna say, I also love the moment when Guillermo and Alfonso were on stage together mm-hmm. and they were able to celebrate their win. That was, we didn't
0: great. say yeah. Alfonso Cuaron was, Oh, I did say that best, best director. Yeah.
1: Right. Especially cause Guillermo wasn't sure if he was able to, um, be at the ceremony because he was sick or something. He said so. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I felt like he knew that Alfonso was probably gonna win, and he's like, "I want to be there for my friend getting his second Oscar." So I thought that was pretty touching.
0: I love this like Latin American, you know, Avengers style director guild that's like forming up with Alfonso Cuarón, mm-hmm. Del Toro, Alexander Arrieta. You know, uh, maybe Robert Rodriguez can join the gang someday. Who knows? But I- I'm really looking forward to Benicio del Toro directing his first film. So mm. who knows? But okay, those are the Oscars. Obviously, there's a ton of other things that we could talk about, but, you know, it happened. We're moving on. You know, it was one of those things, we're going to forget all about it by next year. But there was (laughs) one interesting thing before we get off of Off Topics that kind of came out of the the ceremony. And that was the fact that, you know, Netflix, you know, walked away with a lot of big prizes. I mean, Roma was a film that did have like a limited theatrical run, but it, it, it didn't play in like every multiplex in the land, right? It, it won a few Oscars, like Best Cinematography, which is the one we didn't mention. But there, there are definitely a lot of people in old school Hollywood who are getting a little concerned with streaming services. They're getting a, a little concerned with Netflix being able to spend huge Oscar budgets to, to market their films. I mean, it didn't work, obviously. The, the winner was Green Book and not Roma, but Steven Spielberg kind of stirred the pot a couple of days ago and there's been this massive debate about you know whether or not Spielberg has a right to sort of impose new rules on the Academy to make it a little bit harder for Netflix to basically in some ways buy their way in, but in other ways not really use the like traditional distribution system for theaters. I think my from what anecdotally, most people I know seem to be falling way 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 more on Netflix's side. In this whole thing. But uh, Corey, I know you've been following this. I mean, where, where do you land? Because this is definitely a sticky one. This, is, this doesn't feel like a, you know, a debate with a clear side because there to me, there are positives and negatives to the streaming model versus the old school theatrical model. But what do you think?
2: It's complicated. I mean, I am a theater purist. I will, I mean, this is, I did not want to watch Rome on a TV for the first time. I dreaded that all year long until they finally announced a press screening where I was like eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And I didn't care that I had to work late the day before. I was like, I'm, I'm going to go. And it's just, I think the theatrical experience is enthralling. I think it's vital. I think film is made for a theater. Um, And at first, I was really anti-streaming. I just really was like, you can't take away the movie theater. And it's like, all these filmmakers are going to Netflix. And I was just like, why is this happening? Like, I just was dreading the thought of having to watch an Alfonso Cuaron film for the first time on a television. I was just like, ooh, I don't like that if I can watch it in a theater. That's where I want to watch it, especially one of his films are just so immersive. And it's just so important. Like, with Rome, I can't even fathom having watched it on a TV for the first time. It's like, I haven't needed to see that in a theater to really able to get just the sound mix and watching the way the cinematography moves it's just like i need a theater but you know at the same time i just was i really have began to kind of come around more to netflix just because does roma exist the way that it does if netflix doesn't give the money to it i mean you know joseph Kahn had a really good thread about this you know talking about just kind of the really harsh realities of the entertainment industry is that it's an industry first. This is a business. These are people trying to make things to make money. And, you know, a lot of these mid-grade films studios aren't funding them anymore they're just not giving them the type of funding that they need and artists who want to make some of these more lavish mid-grade movies that were really successful with awards and critics and all of that for a long time studios are going away from and it's because the audiences are not showing up like they used to for these types of movies Um, it's going more to a blockbuster format the indies can get away with it since the funding is a little bit lesser but you look at a movie like Triple Frontier that's coming out, uh, J.C. Shandor's new film coming out on, Wednesday, or I think, theater's Wednesday and then next week will be on Netflix. Yeah, You know, it's been yeah. five years since we've had a J.C. Shandor film, and it's like Netflix funded that. And I think the, just the dichotomy is they're also dumping it on a Wednesday in March with no fanfare. And maybe that means it's not amazing. I really would kill me if it wasn't because that's one of my favorite filmmakers right now. But I think that's the dichotomy, is that Studios are not funding some of these movies. Netflix is is beginning to keep this mid-grade drama, you know, kind of risky, more risk-taking type film alive. And I don't think Roma gets made the way people want it to be made um, if Netflix does not funded. I think a studio would come in with some concessions for Cuarum and making him try to tell that story in a different way. And I can't imagine that story being told in any other way. And You know, I think Netflix is doing an amazing job of promoting diverse talent. And I think that's another thing that the studio system continues to struggle with. You know, it's like it took us till 2018 to get Black Panther, 2019 to get Captain Marvel, 2017 to get Wonder Woman. And I think that, you know, Netflix is doing a great job of giving more diverse talent, more opportunities to be able to tell stories that the studios may not necessarily fund. So I think Netflix has gone from being a bit of a nuisance to being somebody that's crucial right now in keeping a part of cinema alive that we all love. But it's just the catch 22 is, do we have to leave the movie theater to keep movies alive in certain ways? And I think that is just something that is unbearable for me to try to process. It's like, but that's the movies. I go to the movies to see movies, but you know, um, I think that Eric Cohen and IndieWire had a great point. Like a lot of us discover great film through television. You know, like I watched Susan Kane and Casablanca for the first time on a TV Um, you know, I've seen a lot of classics that way. Uh, it's just, it's, it's not the end of the world, you know, to have to watch a movie on a TV. Um, I think there are certain films that are made certain ways. I still like Roma. I want to see it in a theater if at all possible, but, you know, I think that the Spielbergs of the world are nostalgic for the theater. And I think that they want to keep that experience alive. And I think it's fair to say Netflix needs to have a cap spending like all the other studios do, I guess, but, I think that the problem is, is that you look at the business side of it and they're just not, Spielberg is fighting for companies that are not funding movies that he was able to make when he was younger. Um, And I think that's the problem is that Spielberg was a renegade filmmaker when he started. He was a guy that was going out making things that were riskier, but studios want safe investments now. The theater population kind of fluctuating between what they actually want. I mean, they're going to fund more Bohemian Rhapsodies. Okay. That movie... It's going to do a lot. There, we're gonna have a lot more just toothless music biopics. You know, ironically, I'd say toothless with Bohemian Rhapsody, but <laughs> it's just like <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, as I get off my podium here, I, I just I, I really love theaters. I will fight for the theater experience. I will go watch. I flew on my birthday to New York to go watch two movies in IMAX seventy millimeter. Like I, I am a theater purist, but at the same time. I want all forms of film to push forward. I want all these voices to be able to be amplified and to be able to make art. But the problem is right now is that the studios and the theater chains are just really, to me, it's the studios. They're not funding these movies. They're not giving artists the creative freedom that they need to make the art they want to. And maybe Netflix at times gives people too much rain. But I think that there's got to be a happy medium somewhere. I just don't know where we're going to find it as long as people begin to kind of argue different points on different sides.
0: I mean, here, here's my big problem with Netflix in that regard is cause you kind of mentioned it. They, they are elevating these films that would never get made by the studios. A lot of films made by women and people of color, but they don't market the ones that they don't think will win awards. So here's what keeps mm. happening is like every year, all of these Netflix films come out and no one watches them except for like Ooh. some of them. And like, so to me, I'm getting a little conflicted cause I'm like, this isn't sustainable. Like, they keep putting all of this money in all of these different movies that maybe people will see To All the Boys I Loved Before and set it up. That's great. Netflix, you're saving the rom-com. That's so wonderful, Netflix. But then all these other films, like Shirkers, they don't really care about. Ballad of Buster mm-hmm. Scruggs. I mean, I, who knows how many people actually saw that? And, and they're just going to start pivoting more to films like Bright. The ones that they know are like big watchers. And the same thing's going to happen to Netflix. It's happening to the studios eventually. And I, I just get very, very cautious when people are like, you know, Netflix is so great. And Netflix and Amazon, we didn't really mention Amazon, but, you know, they're, they're doing so much good work to, to make these films someone else's make. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I loved Filmstruck too. Filmstruck was so great. Filmstruck preserved films and it, it was a streaming service and you didn't really own the media, but, you know, you were able to watch these films. So what happened? You know, as soon as money became a bigger issue by like one decimal point, Filmstruck was gone and Mm. everything with it was gone. A lot of films, people will never be able to see again because it's just gone at this point. And sure, Criterion Channel is happening. We're really excited about that and we want to support that. But I just, I look at a venture capital funded company like Netflix, which, you know, I think I, I want them to keep doing what they're doing. But I just want people to be a little bit more cautious about Netflix and like we, we, we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs into streaming. I understand that you know because cause I'm the same way. I love I love the theatrical experience too. And the studio system is broken, but that doesn't mean streaming is gonna solve all of our problems and not that Good anyone's point. saying that. I just hope that people are really paying attention to some of the huge, huge pitfalls that can happen if we just kind of go full on streaming 100%, which I don't, you know, I don't know anybody who's advocating that, but that's kind of where we're headed. If this things keep going as they're going. But what about you? Well, you've heard us talk a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, more or less, I'm in agreement with both you guys. I mean, you got you brought it up already. But my third favorite film of last year was The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That was a new Colin brother film. And I mean, I'm disappointed that I didn't get to see that in theaters. It didn't play near me in theaters. But I'd rather just have the film than it never existing. I mean, to me, that would be a greater loss than to not see in theaters. So for me, I mean, I would certainly champion any film being in theaters. I mean, I think nine out of ten times, I think I prefer the theatrical experience to the home viewing experience. But I understand that that's not always an option and that, you know, as we are progressing that, I mean, there is a greater likelihood that I'll be watching probably 80 to 90 percent of the movies I watch on my laptop or on a TV screen, which isn't preferable. But again, what value what I value the most is the film itself. And I mean, if I had to lose the app through experience, it would certainly be a tremendous loss. I can't even imagine what my life would be like without it. But Mm. at the same time, I don't I don't want to lose film altogether. And I think that might be. What the conversation is shifting towards, but I mean, yeah, I, I we've talked about our problems with Netflix itself. I mean, it's it's like a catch twenty two. It's like you you are glad to have Netflix around to champion films or bring back shows that might have been lost and all this stuff. And they have certainly proven themselves in a number of ways. But at the same time, I totally agree with you, John, that you know the marketing is often not there, or the word of mouth is often what they rely upon. And it's not to say that. Like Shirkers is a great example. Like Shirkers is a fantastic film and we both love it. We we have and if it weren't for you and a couple other people, I wouldn't even know about Shirkers. Like I just would not. Like it would not come up at all. I don't ever see it on Netflix site until I typed it in to the keypad. So I mean, yeah, I I I am glad that it's there and that it's a resource that's providing films that may not get made or promoted or distributed otherwise. But at the same time, I do totally agree that Netflix has a long way to go before it earns my full, unbridled appreciation. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, I'm going to be talking about The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind Leader, which is a Netflix film. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw another Netflix film this past week, the Behind the Curve, the Flat Earth documentary. I'm not really going to talk about it. It's just, you know, it's a Flat (laughs) Earth documentary that's kind of entertaining. But... Like I really had a lot of fun just popping those in, you know, watching watching a quick documentary and then watching this boy who harnessed the wind, which was at Sundance. I didn't get a chance to see it and I was like, oh, I wanted to see this, so now I can. I'm right on Netflix. That's great. You know, and I missed my chance to see it in theaters and it's not really playing around here. So I, I guess I'm I'm conflicted on it because obviously I like watching streaming. It's very convenient to just watch things on on my own TV. But I guess I worry more about the like cultural conversation around things. Like I keep I keep seeing these films that either I really like or I really dislike, and I want to talk about them. But I, I'm losing that opportunity because I'm not watching all the same things as other people, and we just get pushed into these bubbles with only people who watch all the things that we watch. And it's like if you don't have a Twitter account, wh- where are you going to go? Like, I mean, there's there's forums, there's message boards, and things like that. But then again, you're just kind of being pushed into these little pockets where there are films happening all around you that you're not seeing. And so that's something that kind of worries me because what's nice about theaters is that there is sort of this unifying, you know, people in middle America can be watching the same film that I'm watching over right here on the West coast and, and so on. So that's yeah. kind of where I land, but we do have to move on. Unfortunately, oh, gonna, it's, it's a great topic, one, but yeah. Finish this one, out.
1: one quick point. I just want to say, I, I do love, and I'll give credit to Guy Lodge because he said this on Twitter. Uh, I do love that this whole conversation uh, revolved around Green Book, which, as he said, is a film that no one says, "Oh, you gotta see that in the cinema."
0: Which, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, that's I mean, we could mention all kinds of interesting case studies, yeah. like, like Get Out. You know, if Get Out had come out on Netflix, do you think it would have been the cultural hit that it was? I don't know, and and I I kind yeah, of hesitate to, say, to say it would be. It, it's hard to say, but that that's something that does worry me. Is like, what what's a, a Get Out that we might miss out on? Because it but goes to a streaming service and nobody watches it. That's what but works. But then
1: again, yeah, I mean, you could do hypotheticals like that all the time. But then you could also say, like, would, uh, like you were talking about, Tell the Boys I Love Before, would that be a bigger hit in theaters? Like, would Absolutely. That just exactly, slip exactly. Would that but slip under nobody the radar seen, it. Yeah. Nobody so, right? there's there's no seen it. yeah, Nobody would have seen it. There's
2: one film, though, we need to bring up in this conversation, and that's Bird Box.
1: Because
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Bird I mentioned Box, Bright instead of Bird Box for some reason. I'm so sorry. No, but
2: I mean bird box to me that film was that was a cultural moment for about three weeks and i don't know if that hit that if it's in theaters i think bird box is a watershed moment for streaming i think that's a film netflix did very little marketing for i think they had a big star they in did like gorilla
0: marketing for it yeah gorilla marketing yes
2: yeah, so it was just you know just the subtleties but i think what happened was they put it out right around Christmas. People needed something to watch. And Sandra Bullock's face came up with a blindfold on, on Netflix. And people began to kind of just pop it in, pop it in, pop it in, text their friends about it. And it started like an entire viral moment. And I'm wondering, is this where genre filmmaking is going to
0: go? Because I mean, yeah, I mean, next like- Christmas, next Christmas, Julia mm-hmm. Roberts is going to be wearing like Hello Kitty headphones. And people are going to be like, mm-hmm. what can she hear? And uh. here we go again. <laughs>
1: But I think that's also why Bright did well, right? Because that was also Mm -hmm. a December release. That was around Christmas. And people were like, oh, the new Will Smith movie. It's on Netflix. We don't have to go out to the theaters to see it. Sure, Mm -hmm. why not? You know, what am I going to lose watching a new Will Smith movie on Netflix? And then I don't know if anyone really liked Bright, but a lot of people saw it because, yeah, no, I mean, we're not going to talk about the quality of Bright. I'm just saying, like, from a purely, like, people seeing it uh, question or whatever, like, that's – people just saw it because it was viable right then. I think that's what happened with Bird Box. And who knows what will be – this December, you know, like you said, it could be anything with an A-list star that people don't feel like seeing in theaters, but they'll check it out if it's for free on Netflix. So who knows? All right. With that, we
0: finally have to move on. Definitely our longest <laughs> off topics in quite a while, but very good conversation. Thank you guys for contributing to that because I think that it was something that was a good conversation worth having, but let's get into what the listeners are really here for. They want to know all about Greta and My goodness. Uh, All three of us have seen this. So this is a new suspenseful thriller. It was directed and co-written by the prolific Neil Jordan. Love a lot of his films. It stars Chloe Grace Moretz as Frances, a young 20-something New York transplant from Boston. So not Frances Ha. She's just moved to town with her best friend Erica, played by Micah Monroe who I think is a real star of this movie. Uh, she's dealing with the recent trauma of her mother's untimely death. She works as a waitress and is still getting acclimated to her new life when one day she stumbles across an expensive looking handbag with an ID in it for a French woman named Greta, played by Isabel, I think it's pair or Hopper, pair I think. She returns the bag, which Greta is of course very grateful for, The two begin a strong friendship where you can tell Francis is leaning on Greta for maternal support and direction. It's just a charming New York City story, right? That's all well and good until eventually Francis discovers Greta has a dark secret. She intentionally left that handbag on the subway for someone to return it to her. And when Francis pulls away for obvious reasons, Greta begins to stalk and harass her in extremely creepy fashion. Even showing up one night at the restaurant where Francis works. So here is a clip where Francis is forced to wait on Greta and bring her the drink she ordered. Here's a clip. The May I? A bit like you, promises
1: a lot then disappoints. Okay. I deserve better. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You can't do this to me, to us. Are you a child? No, you're the child. You need someone to love. You need a mother to hold you. You love someone and you're afraid to love. We both know it's true. Don't you dare talk to me about my mother. Darling, don't you understand? She had to die. She had to die. For me. Are you out of your mind? Oh, you just can't accept. Look at her! She's full of love of grieving! She's gone! Just accept it! It's called
0: now! She all right, that is a clip from the film Greta. Obviously, the feel-good spring movie where an unlikely friendship blossoms. But yeah, so definitely a pretty intense, uh, gripping film. And you know, it does all the things it's probably supposed to do as a genre film. But despite all that, you know, critics are a bit mixed on it. Like something deeper is missing. I, for one, enjoyed it quite a bit. I found it to be a very quirky watch. I actually recommend it to anyone even remotely curious from the trailer. I think you'll get a kick out of it. But what about you, Corey Woodruff? Did you fall in love with Greta?
2: Yeah, it's my favorite film of the year so far. Oh, wow. I I think it's brilliant. This is, to me, it's like, there's a film critic that I'm good friends with named Jason Shahan who says that's like one of the best, like, of thrillers he's seen in years, and I'm almost inclined to agree. I think it is phenomenal. I mean, this is really like I, I was shocked, and I think that's part of it is I was so shocked. I didn't understand where in the world this movie came from. I, you know, once I learned that it was Neil Jordan, I was like, that makes a little more sense. But I think it's brilliant. I think it is just such great socio-political horror. Um, I think it just does such a great job of just being a grimy, fun, you know, stalker thriller at the same time has a ton of really interesting commentary on the social and digital age. And I think it's delectably made. I think the performances are great. I, this film is like, I wasn't prepared for it. And I was openly yelling things in the theater because there were like eight people in there. And I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have a visceral experience with this. And there's just shots in that movie where it's it is just so committed to being as as crazy and as just ludicrous and genre happy as possible, but it's also really artistic. It's really, you know, very European in the way that it kind of unfolds its story. And I, I just think it's it's and sometimes it's really beautiful. Like that scene, there's a we'll probably talk more about the film in depth. I won't give too many spoilers away, but uh, this is like well, this, this is my favorite film of the year so far. I think it's just a, a beautifully made, delicate genre, just nasty odor. Uh, that's great.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think okay, the I way think. this film won me over was because when I had low expectations, I thought it was, you know, watching the trailer, I was like, ah, I feel like I know the whole story. I, I know all the beats. I know what's going to happen. And no, the the structure was different. It, it was offbeat. There, there were things that happened in here. On the one hand, I got to knock this film down a little bit because the character of Francis frustrated me to no end. It was that situation where I was yelling at the screen, not not in public because people were in the theater. But, you know, I, I definitely was so frustrated with Francis because she does the dumbest stuff. But the film didn't unfold in a lot of the cliche ways that my brain was telling me. So I think I really got a kick out of it for that reason. Like I was watching it. And as it went, I was like, oh my goodness, Like I didn't see that coming. And I was like, okay, well, that I want to keep seeing what happens next. And I was pretty invested in this. But I will say, I, I don't think I would watch this – Movie again, like maybe I would watch it again with somebody else, like to introduce it to them. But I definitely finished it and was like, I'm good. I do not, I do not want to have to see this again because it's a bit of a, a, a tough watch in, in some ways. But, but Will, I think you're probably the least positive out of all of us. So, yeah, uh, wh- wh- what do you think? Walk us through it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went into it pretty enthusiastic. I didn't see any trailers or anything for it. I just saw the poster and I think I saw the scene where uh Isabel H- Hubert threw the table and I was like okay that's enough I'm good I'm ready for this film she's fantastic I think she's always great and I think she brings the right energy to this film and I think her performance is just wry enough and it I think it gave the movie a, a little more classing and, and it made me certainly appreciate the movie a little bit more if she was not in it um but and this is where I I, I feel you guys are gonna start bringing out your pitchforks but for me I was really not into the film beyond the last like 20, maybe 30 minutes of the movie at most. That's where I was like, okay, this is where the film's kind of owning up to being kind of campy and a little schlocky and it's having fun. The violence is a lot more extreme. Like the movie is going to have some, uh, some entertainment camp value. Like I said to it, that allows it to be a little more pulpy and silly and a little more unpredictable as you might've been saying, John, but I just was so bored throughout the first, two-thirds of this movie and I think for me it's just that I mean I just don't really see what this movie does that hasn't been done before and I don't really see uh what this movie does to make me value it over other films that have talked about uh the dangers of the internet or you know not talking to strangers or you know the stranger you trust but then you realize are your biggest enemy and stuff like I I think about, like, last year, I saw Best Friends with Tommy Wiseau, and it's, like, kind of similar, and I would I would probably see Best Friends, even though it's, like, probably on par with this film, uh, before I watch this one again. So, I don't know. For me, it's not terrible. I just found it fairly mediocre.
0: All right. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of get what you're saying because, you know, the, the first two thirds, I wasn't that into it either, but I do think this is one of those films with a strong finish. I don't know. I don't feel like arguing that much because I, I can't really explain why this worked for me. There was something about I when, when there were scenes between Micah Monroe and Francis, you know, with Chloe, Grace Moritz should say her name when she's just this super naive kid. And yeah. And Micah Monroe is just like, she's the the audience surrogate, and she is what I think. I know a lot of people are going to rightly praise Isabel Cooper for just going all the way with this performance, but Micah Monroe just, you feel like, yes, thank you. You're you're in this movie to represent me. You know, you're the voice of reason here. And
1: oh yeah, just the stereotypical best friend character who. I think not beyond, stereotypical.
0: No, because the stereotypical best friend character would be ditzy. She would just sort of be no, shouty not, and things like okay. that, but she actually says things Different
1: best friend, different best friend character. That's a different stereotype. This is a stereotype where beyond can't just like what call it all okay. a stereotype. No, 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 no. no. Because, okay. There's two separate. Okay. Hang on. Let me, let me make my point. Uh, there are two separate types of like best friend stereotype. That's the one you're talking about. The ditzy one you're talking about, but that's what I'm referring to. I'm talking about the one where, if it's not for Chloe Grace Rometz, like she doesn't really have a life. Like her character basically just revolves around her best friend. Otherwise, she just goes to a club and like that's like the extent of like what her backstory is. That's what I'm talking about by the stereotype of the best friend.
0: No, because I think they have a deeper connection beyond that. Because the Micah Monroe character, you know, they were friends before. The reason that she has this apartment is because Micah Monroe has money. And so them being roommates, I thought that was pretty believable. I mean, you can sort of point to similarities between her and other characters in other movies. But I think she does serve a very clear purpose and function in the movie as her best friend that I thought was touching and they actually did it in a good way. Like I wouldn't look at that and say, well, because there have been other friends in these movies that kind of are similar. No, I think Monroe does her own thing with the role. I think she has like her own energy to it. And she kind of like, I don't know, there there was something about her presence that like, you could feel like the screenplay loved putting her in there. And and that to me is what works about this movie. And what makes it not mediocre is the screenplay is actually pretty good. It's dealing with pretty mediocre subject matters. Like, okay, harassing, thriller, suspense, all of that. But I just think it's the way that, I I think the way that Jordan just like does it in this format, the way that he stages everything and sort of like runs it about is what makes it work ultimately, in my opinion. But what do you think, Corey? I mean, it's interesting. It's very De Palma-esque, I think.
2: Um, Just in the way that he was always very happy to embrace the genre play while also dealing with the filmmaking and the heavy material at the same time uh, i don't know what it was about this that just it just hit me in the right way um i loved i thought Per is great i think she is just so devious in this and it's just so fascinating to see like who some people feel is the actor of her generation just slumming it up and a really just uh, to the wall performance. I mean, it. it she is. She goes like hundred and ten percent, and it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a shot in the movie. I don't want to give it away, but it is so, quite frankly, grotesque in the way that they stage it. And it's like Jordan knows that this image that you're looking at is just like it will make you a little queasy. But who pair just sells it, and she's just mm-hmm. so. I like that. in I like on just playing up with the just as you guys say that you know this the. The camp of it, and just like the, you know, I think that's what Rotten Tomatoes old blurb said that it was just a, that it dives into the campiness. That was their blurb they used, and I think that it does. It's it's a film that just is so aggressively wants to be one of these. Just like you know, just it, uh, To me, it's a horror film. I think this is a definite horror film because it wants to, it wants to do the basic instinct. It wants to. We do all know Jordan image.
0: loves. We all know Jordan loves horror films, so mm-hmm. that's definitely a good comparison.
2: Yeah, and the film that really popped in my head was Play Misty for Me. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it was Clint Eastwood's first directorial film. And uh, it's very similar, you know? It's got the person that begins, like, the very the classic stalker format they meet, they have a relationship of some sort, but the person lingers around until the, the second person really wants to kind of get away. But it's kind of at the same time, you know, it does have that European flair to it. And there's this conversation between um, Moret's character and this one person who we won't say since we're not doing spoilers in the conversation, but uh, it's just, it's just so artistic and the way that they put the music in the background and the way it's edited, it was beautiful to me. It's just, it just, the film, like it's like almost lyrical. It just continues on with this, this loop. And it just, it barely kind of breaks time down to really kind of settle itself. It really just wants to keep going on a pretty just forward trajectory. But I, um, You know, it it has some misery comparisons to Cassie Bates' film, of course, with Stephen King. Uh, Mm I just, I think the thing I loved about it the most is that it just, it was the way it was paced. I think the pacing in that film is immaculate. I think it's one of the best edited films I've seen um, this year and last year, really. I just think it's, I think this is a movie that people are going to begin to come back around to in two or three years. Maybe if the conversation keeps alive, maybe it won't. But I feel like this film—it's got some tangible some 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 tangibleness to it that I feel like is going to give it an audience somewhere. Uh, but I just—I don't know if people are gonna watch it or see it. It's just—it's such a weird release um, for the for the theater right now as it stands. Um, the genre films too do, do well, but. I don't know if this will find its audience, but it just hit me in the right way. I think that Moritz is great. She is just such a phenomenal actress right now for suspense thriller. Um, She just does such a good job of buying into the premise and selling all the fear that goes on. But I don't know. I think that it can definitely hit people the wrong way. I think it's a film that knows what it is It knows what it wants to do. And if you don't buy into that, you're not going to hook on. But it just – I was – supremely caught off guard with what he was trying to do here. I thought it was just really, really, really fun. Um, it was just just really, it, it's, it's a spooky movie. I mean, it definitely plays in, there's a certain scene where like a text message changes the entire perception of the way people look at a character and where their well-being is. And just right now, you just think of how digitally connected we are and how much trust we have in digital communication. And I think that's mm-hmm. an element of it, to me that was really, really unsettling.
0: So we can count that as your final thoughts, Corey. So, what's your letter grade for Greta?
2: I'd give it. I'd say a minus. I, you know, I may not go fully an A, but I'd say an A minus for sure. Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. My my biggest criticism toward this film is its very heavy implication that somebody from Boston can't survive New York. I thought that was a little annoying. Like, I just okay this idea. That Francis is this like naive, you know, but she's from Boston? Like, come on. Like, put her put her in a different like if she's from Ohio. That that's where that makes sense. Like, somebody from Ohio or somebody from like Virginia, you know, like a more doesn't have to be that rural, but you know what I mean. I, I just uh, that was so unbelievable for me that like she would just be so naive considering where she was from. And I just felt like it was Neil Jordan digging at a place where I was born. But that's I was gonna say that yeah, seems more
1: thing. Personal this, this is more personal. This related. is not, yeah. right. This <laughs>
0: isn't film criticism. This isn't, yeah. no. But yeah, yeah I, I, I think that, yes, this this film, I, I think you said it well with the editing and the pace, Corey. It's it's a film that is at its best in the end, but what's good about it is that it earns its dive into campiness. You know, it actually has momentum that gets to a place where you totally believe that this is what will happen, even though it, it's something that was inevitable in this movie, But because of the way it's structured, you just don't, at least for me, I didn't fully see it coming. So I'm a B on this one. I have a lot of issues with it, but I just think that it's, it's perfectly enjoyable. And I think, yeah, people should go check it out. It's not taking the box office by storm whatsoever. So... I'm a little disappointed in that. And I can see why this came out at TIFF last year. You know, I I definitely think that that was a good idea for them to try to get more of this kind of genre film out there at a prestige film festival. But yeah, Will Ashton, tell us all about your B+. Sure.
1: Uh, No, I mean, I don't think I'm too far off the mark from what you guys are saying. I just don't have myself, I don't find myself being quite as positive on the film, ultimately. I just think the stuff that bothers me, bothers me a little too much. But I do think that um, on the whole, like I think Corey, I do think you're onto something. I do see that this film maybe being a bit of a cult classic in a way. Like I could see people kind of uh, getting a like a bowl of popcorn and like quoting along when she's like, "They must be building an arc. There's like, <laughs> like, like like little quotes <laughs> like that. I could see them like cackling along with. And I mean, there, there's there's like a couple moments where I chuckled up. But I think that's all credit to Isabella. Uh, how do you pronounce your last name, Corey? Isabelle Hupeir okay um yeah i think i i would say certainly her performance brings a lot of life to this film i, I don't know if i'm quite as strong on the screenplay as you two are but i do think because i mean i don't know i just feel like throughout the movies definitely at the beginning he was like this is totally like a uh, older guy taught writing millennial girls thing definitely like who has a house phone in tribeca like i just want to know
0: um <laughs> somebody from boston clearly
1: I guess, yeah, you know, you'd know, I guess, Sean. Um, <laughs> but in any case, uh, I, my only main thing I want to say, and I, I feel this is a little mean, but I, I've something I've noticed that I think Chloe Grace Moretz is good, but I've noticed a lot recently that I feel like every time I watch her performances, with the exception of Hit Girl, like I feel like there's often, like, she's good, but someone could be doing this better. And I got that sense a lot during this movie, especially with, like, make of her in the film i was like i kind of wish she was the lead i feel like uh, she would bring I Had
0: that same thought yeah like a I little bit
1: because i think like i think that's where i'm going from with the script like, i think francis is kind of an underwritten character to begin with And i don't think i, I guess she's kind of bringing like the doe eye innocence to it That is fine but i just wish there was just something more to that like maybe a little bit stronger to make that lead character a little more compelling to make that those first two thirds a little more uh, engaging at least for me so, um, yeah, I'm not totally against the film. I was expecting to be a lot more negative than I ultimately was. For me, it's just a C plus. Like, it's okay. I might grow to like it more upon rewatch if I ever check it out again. But I just am not quite as high as you two are, unfortunately.
0: I just I just feel bad, Will Ashton, because, you know, the whole point of this movie is everyone needs a friend. Corey and I, you know, we, we became friends <laughs> talking about this movie. And here you are, left out in the cold. And I just feel bad about that, so... Maybe Isabel Huppert can come on the show next week and
1: I'm putting on my gloves now, John. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm I'll never we, gonna
1: look
2: at the piano the same way again after watching a movie mm, like this. Yeah, I'm uh, always gonna be like looking at the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: if it has like that uh that metronome on top, I'm definitely going to be a little suspicious. <laughs>
2: but yeah, yeah. Period, let me check in to see what's going on.
0: I
1: will also, say that 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 element was good. I did like that little like how they played up with that. Like I, I really wish the like the first two the last third of this was as good. Or the first two thirds of this was as good as the last third, but I digress.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, it was interesting to see that Stephen Ree was in this for some reason. Uh, he tends to show up in a lot of. He's also an Irish actor, and Neil Jordan is of course Irish. So he shows up in a lot of his films. But I was very tickled to see Fier in here because he uh, he was in Umbrella Academy. He plays the the patriarch of that new Netflix series, and I was like, oh hey, it's Hargreaves. And I've just I just finished Umbrella Academy on Netflix, so it's kind of Kind of funny to see him. And last thing I'll say, too, is Micah Monroe. She she should be a bigger star than she is right now. I think the only film I saw her in last year was the one uh, Hot Hot Summer Nights, and that was it.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's She's great, of, yeah.
0: She is great. The travesty is She's not in more things. So that's Greta. I think it's about, it's like in the 60%-ish territory on Rotten Tomatoes. So the mixed reviews here make a lot of sense. And I think it's only projected to get maybe up to six million for the box office, but I think so far it's only made a couple million. So I'm not sure how it's going to do at the box office. Probably not going to do super well. And I think that's a shame. But who knows? Maybe maybe you're right, Corey. Maybe maybe one day, yeah, this is going to be the kind of film that people are going to rediscover as if they're the first ones to talk about it. And they'll find this episode and they'll be like, oh, they called it. There you go. All right. So moving on, I'm going to talk about a film that just came out in limited release. This is another Sundance film that is getting a limited release it's called Apollo 11. So this is a new documentary from CNN Films and Neon. And I think you saw it as well, Corey? Mm-hmm. Last yeah. Time. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, yeah, like I said, it premiered this past January at Sundance. It's not getting a limited release in IMAX, actually. And it. I think it truly earns that format because it's a straightforward presentation of the famous Apollo 11 mission, but it's stretched out into the big screen using never-before-seen archival footage, which is in 70 millimeter format. So you're obviously not watching the Apollo 11 mission in real time, but there are like a few points in the mission that are in real time, like when they're touching down on the moon, the countdown and things like that. There are also a few instances that kind of put you in the shoes of the mission control people. You're not always out in space, or you know anything like that, but you spend a lot of time in mission control. You spend a lot of time outside of the launch pad, where like people are actually like spectating and things like that. You get a real sense of what was going on, the mood, and and everything to that effect. So, I think this film was pretty good for capturing how tense this mission was because we forget how big of an undertaking it was. It was a huge gamble for NASA. It was a huge gamble for America. It was a gargantuan risk. People had died at this point. And we really, I would say we, but you know, the country just did not know if Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins would actually pull this off and make it back safely. So there's a great video from Patrick Willems on YouTube It's about unintentional historical cinematic universes. I highly recommend it. They're the sort of cinematic universes that happen by chance and coincidence. I actually watched this right before I saw Apollo 11. It just showed up, and I did not plan this. And uh, in the video, Willems discusses how space travel films like First Man, The Right Stuff, Hidden Figures, and Apollo 13 share a lot of similarities with modern cinematic universes in the way that they draw from a single source material, in their case history. And you have different characters from these movies showing up in these films for different purposes. So it was pretty serendipitous that I watched Apollo 11 right after this, because I noticed it's like, wow, Apollo 11 would fit right into that kind of cinematic universe of space movies that are set in the 60s. And I also think that Apollo 11 is kind of a direct answer to a lot of the conspiracy theories that the moon landing was faked, something that I've never bought into, but I know a lot of reasonable people think that it was faked. And if you've ever entertained those conspiracies, I think this is a documentary you should absolutely check out. It was directed by Todd Douglas Miller. You did Dinosaur 13 and another one. And even if it's not playing in your area, I think they're going to be playing Apollo 11 in a wider release soon. And then I think it's going to be on TV pretty soon as well. I think on CNN, but I'm not really sure.
1: The whole Apollo program was designed to get two Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of
2: this event is something that only history will be able to judge. Apollo 11 has very simply been given the mission
0: of carrying men to the moon, landing them there, and bringing them
1: safely back.
0: I think this is a fascinating documentary. like I think that the way it uses... I the limitations of the footage available to communicate patience and dread and excitement during, you know, bookending a very tumultuous decade. And to me, it almost feels like an exercise in Americans revisiting a period of time where they can feel positive nostalgia for us still, since our country seems so far away from the shared pride and joy that previous generations, you know, they've been telling us for so long that this was unlike any other moment in American history. And I think that this documentary definitely makes that Case, you know, I had a hard time on that note participating in this film's thesis statement. You know, even though I loved everything I was seeing and I, I thought that it was a it was an incredible visual experience, I think something personally was holding me back from getting sucked in. I I think I I don't know if it's because I prefer the more nuanced character study in First Man, which is more not anti patriotic, but it's a bit deeper with who this guy is as opposed to this, which is so straightforward. And I also struggle a little bit with these documentaries, and this is probably blasphemous. I know a lot of people love that more modern documentaries aren't having talking heads or narrators and things like that, weaving and explaining the context, like They Shall Not Grow Old. You know, It's a film where the people of the time period tell the story, nothing more, nothing less. And I'm struggling to decide if that's a filmmaking technique that fully works for me with documentaries. I, I think for a lot of people, it will. And I will reference Mike Wallace's Here, which is another documentary that does that and does that way better. So that's I think that's what's tripping me up. It's like I've seen this work really well in a more modern documentary, and that's Mike Wallace is Here. And I don't quite see it in here, but that's where I'm at with Apollo 11. Corey Woodruff, what about you? Well, you know, again, to, to
2: start off, the IMAX is pretty great. I mean, you know, I think that it feels like IMAX, there's still this group of people in hollywood that still believe in this format you know this is one of the things i'm scared we're going to begin to lose as time goes on it's a premium ticket it cost me 20 bucks to go the other night uh, or last night when i went but it's just these are this is what you have imax for it's to go watch the apollo 11 launching off into space and seeing that footage that's never really been projected in that way and looking at you know just seeing space and just such a it's the vastness of it and being able to just kind of soak in just the, the scope of what's happening. And I think that IMAX is one of the few forms of projection now that still do that in just such a way that you begin to feel small. And I think there were moments in this where I was watching it where I just, you, you feel the space over you, you feel that this big theater and this big image and the way the sound is just surrounding you and engulfing you. And I just, this is still my favorite way to watch a movie. I think IMAX is still the King, but you know, I think that, I agree with you on a lot of it. I think that the the way it was done, you know, I think Dave Elric had a great point in his review that, like, once you get past the moon, like the actual launch, and I think the tension that it builds up, the countdown, all the different perspectives they show, I think that's all really, really effective. The way it's edited, it's just like you feel the tension and it blasts off and it's just such a huge image. And it really stunned me. I was, like, taken away by that. And then you get into space and it's like, you know mentioned they only had so much limited footage. And think that's the problem is it's just like at that point, it's like the film really tries to like, well, we still want to do this in real time, but there's lags in the time. There's lags in the tension. There's a moment like, well, they're there. We know that they're going to be blasting off for a while. So we just hit Cassidy and twiddle our fingers until we actually get to the point where all these big steps are going. And when you get there, it's pretty great. And then when they get on the moon and you actually see Neil Armstrong actually saying his big lines and going to walk on the moon and just you see it that you know you sense the discovery and the fear and i just think it's a movie that kind of has peaks i love that they showed the heart rates of the guys when they were you know you just begin to see the human emotion i think those are just the on a macro level i think the film is kind of it ebbs and flows i, I preferred the ebbs more than the flows at times um you know i, I kind of like the more traditional documentary I don't want to knock the new way people are trying to do it, where it is just so, it is just so linear. It is just like almost a narrative in and of itself. But I don't know. I feel like this film could have used just a little bit of gravity, no pun intended, mm. um, with uh, just having some of these guys actually, you actually see them talking. I think it would have been awesome to like have Buzz Aldrin pop up every now and again and just give you the weight of him being like, yeah, we were about to, you know, pass out when we were doing this, you know, and he's just got such a rise of humor. I could have used that. I could have used more of just, you know, having a bit more context into why this is huge, why it matters. And, you know, but at the same time, I love sort of the decisions they made to just show the people in the crowds, like, you know, buying Krispy Kreme donuts and
1: <laughs> going to, uh,
2: you know, I, well, my, my, I think my favorite part outside of the launch is when they're at NASA. And it's just these people just kind of sitting around watching the TV when mm-hmm. Chadwickwick happens with Ted Kennedy. And then being like, well, you know, I guess we've been knocked out of the news cycle. We literally are on our way to the moon, but now it's like this is what people are talking about. It just makes you just think that life goes on, that we're in this incredible historical moment. History is literally being made. Science is being pushed to its limits. But people are still getting, you know, honey buns at the commissary and news is still going on and people are still, you know, sharpening pencils and, you know, sitting watching TV at the lobby at work before they go and run the numbers. Like, I loved that part of it, and I think that's what I wanted more of. I wanted to see more of the nuances of, you know, maybe it would have been cool to get to know some of the people. Like the, the the faces of Mission Control are kind of anonymous, and I get that they don't they can't delve into too much of that because of the tension. But I just would love to have seen more of just the more of the more of the ground control, you know, like more of this just dichotomy between people in button down shirts that are drinking coffee and running numbers on the computer. Spliced with these three men that are on a death-defying mission to like push forth human history, that, I think that's the balance of it that really made it unique outside of just the general footage, outside of the technical achievement, which it is. I mean, that footage is pretty great, and yeah, that yeah. same thing with the parade. It looks beautiful, like it's just the way that it's shot and the way they build the tension and the way they allowed the footage to run. Like, I think it's a it's a really great achievement,
0: and I really it is blurry the in IMAX, though. Movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's there, there's really blurry stuff. And even like some of the yeah. text that comes on screen, because it was an IMAX, it was like kind of mm-hmm. pixelated. And I was like, that's, you don't, that doesn't have to be the case. Like I get the footage itself, not being mm-hmm. perfectly, you know, digitally restored. I don't expect it to, but yeah, there were, there were little moments where I was like, this didn't feel quite as polished to me.
2: Yeah. And I, I think our IMAX has laser now. And the laser and the screen on the IMAX are still trying to get used to each other, so you kind of get that little, like rainbow esque little flare almost, just because the screen is a little bit older and it's getting used to this new technology. Like it, it's, I really admire what it is, but I just don't think it's quite like an amazing documentary. in just in terms of like you know some of the great documentaries we saw last year, like I think it's more of a cool companion piece to so something like First Man, which again I fr- I prefer that that way of telling the story as opposed, but again, it's, 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 it's an edifying experience. Like I don't want to knock it at all. I think it's sure. really, really, uh, sure. it's really effective. And I would, I would love to go see it again at like a museum or something. Cause it's a quick watch. So yeah, I, mean, I think that's the cool thing about it. It's like, it's like, they should never grow old. It'll play in museums for years. You'll learn a ton. Kids will really enjoy it. It's got enough art to it to where it's like, you know, you can have that richness and the gratification of seeing that footage, but I think that there's just a little bit of a limit there. I think it gives itself by just wanting to be what it is.
0: What's your final grade on it?
2: I give it a B, B plus something in that range. You know, I think it's really cool, but I think it's, it's kind of more of like a first man's an A experience. I think this is like the B side of that.
0: Yeah. I'm a low B, so we're not too far off there. So, all right. That is Apollo 11. Be sure to keep an eye out for it in your local theater, if it's playing on IMAX and you're interested in the subject matter, definitely worth checking out. Okay. Will Ashton, you saw a film that I think you're the only person who saw climax latest film from Gaspar Noe. I refuse to see this movie. I I have no interest whatsoever. This just feels like Suspiria all over again. I just don't want to do it. And I'm I'm just not in the mood. I just don't want to go to the theater. I don't want to sit through this. I didn't like his other film. And but I'm obviously wrong. You're obviously right. Tell us tell us about Climax.
1: I mean, I don't know if I'm ever right, but I mean, I will say you you only saw Love, right? His previous film, which I haven't seen, which I would say by even detractors of Gaspar Noe is like that's not the best quantifier of his work, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Anyway, yeah, as you were saying, yeah, Gaspar Noe's new film is Climax and the general gist of the plot is that it's centered around these young 20- to 30-year-old dancers who are uh, having basically the time of their lives, just kind of enjoying being young, talking about drugs and sex. It's like, okay, that sounds like your typical Gaspar Noe film. And then they extenuate that by going, hey, uh, that sangria you guys are all drinking, that's spiked with LSD. And everyone, everything literally just goes to hell from there. Like It's just pure madness, and uh, that's where you kind of get the gist of the plot or maybe back the thereof um, with this movie. I can definitely see people being either more or less favorable than they usually are with Gaspar Noe movies. I think it's uh, it removes some of the pretensions of some of his other films where it's not really saying a whole lot. I'm not even hundred percent sure what exactly it's saying. If anything, I think for the most part, Gaspar Noe just wanted to make a fun kind of uh twisty, darkly comedic uh, little filmmaking experiment. Well, with this.
0: If I may, I, I did read some reviews on this, which is why – because this is the kind of film where I was like, I, I am going to read reviews because I don't have interest in it, so I wanted to be convinced. I did read some reviews that mentioned that it might be a statement on French nationalism because apparently okay. there's a scene where the one of the only – I think the only Muslim in the group gets kicked out right before everything yeah, goes crazy.
1: I was going to say, yeah, it definitely – if anything, it feels more like a social commentary. I wasn't sure if it was world politics or more right. uh, French politics, but – like you're saying that there is a point in the film where it says like it's a French film and proud of it. So I was pretty sure it was more French films. That's why I say it's not so much. I don't think the film is saying something. I just wasn't 100% sure was trying to say, but you're, I think it premiered, it
0: premiered, it premiered a can, you know, of course it's going to be, yeah, fully French.
1: Yeah. So, um, I should note that it takes place in the mid nineties, but it doesn't really, uh, point too much out as far as the timeline is concerned. But, uh, as a film, like, I think it's a movie that, I just greatly enjoyed, but I was wondering as I was watching, like, is this more just I'm enjoying the filmmaking experience or am I really getting something out of it? And I think as I think more about it, the more I'm like, I think this might honestly be, This is a pretty early year and I haven't really enjoyed that many films. This is maybe my favorite film of the year so far, which is John, I can hear the Mm. visceral in your Uh. voice as you're saying, but it's just so nutty. And it's so um, it it is fairly self-indulgent as a way it's a Gaspar Noe film. So you kind of expect that, but it's also just so gun ho about being what it is and going all out with it. That, I mean, you just have to kind of admire just its chutzpah in a way, because the first, like in the first half of the movie, you have like a 13 minute single take, which involves an extensive dance sequence, party mm-hmm. sequence that I saw um,
0: five minutes of it. And because it's, it's on it's, YouTube,
1: it's the moment of the year. Like it's for me right now, like it's, I haven't seen anything better at the cinema. It's just fantastic. But then, like, as you're watching the first half of the movie, it's just mostly people talking at a party. And it's like, I I know just not only from Gaspar Noe's experience, but just in films in general, like, it's not just going to be like this the whole time. Something It's it's too fun and accessible for a Gaspar Noe movie. Something's about to go down. And sure enough, like, halfway through, like, Gaspar Noe's name flashes up as if to say, like, hey, don't forget, I made this movie. And from there, <laughs> <laughs> you have a 42-minute single take Like, meltdown, what you're talking about, where, like, people are getting kicked out, people are pointing fingers, like, violence ensues, and it's gonna be, like, a make or break. I think that's the moment where I can definitely see some people being like, I'm not about this, and I can totally understand it, because it may seem needlessly exploitative or maybe uh, cruel for the sake of being cruel. It's definitely a mean-spirited film in that regard, but for me, I mean, I... I am only growing to like this movie more upon retrospect. And I'm, it's the only movie I've seen this year that I really want to watch again and really dive into and get the most out of, because I just think it's good filmmaking for through and through. And I mean, I don't know if I, uh, am going to like it more upon rewatch or if I'm going to notice more of like what people, uh, tend to dislike about his films. But for right now, I'm still kind of high on it. Uh, the LSD spikes in is still in my system. So (laughs) for me, um, it's a B plus. I really think it's solid filmmaking, and I think even if you're not really a fan of Gaspar Noé's other films, that you're going to get a lot out of it. It Does kind of feel like the spiritual successor in some ways to enter the Void, which is the only other Gaspar Noé film I've seen. I do think John, you would like that movie. Same
0: cinematographer, uh, right?
1: Yeah, it's the same guy or same person. I i I forget the person's name. Um, uh, I know
0: his first name is Ben Noé, right? But I forget. Yeah, his last he did
1: name. something. Oh, he did Spring Breakers as well. He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really Harmony
0: cool. Corinne has the next yeah. uh has another movie coming out soon. So
1: yeah, he's he also did uh Sister Brothers and uh the Beach Bomb, the other Gaspar Noe movie coming up. So it looks beautiful. It's a gorgeous looking movie. Beach,
0: uh you made it, the way you said that it made it sound like Beach Bomb is a Gaspar Noe film. Which sorry, sorry, Noah
1: no it is Corrine, not. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <Harley laughs> Corrine, which, I mean yeah. In, in some ways same difference, right? It's like Gentriest <laughs> Frauds, maybe. Um but wow. uh, no. I mean I would Definitely say know is a better filmmaker than Harmony Korine, but I am excited for um, The Beach Bump because I actually, again, that looks like another film where the filmmakers may be putting their pretensions aside and just trying to make a good film. So I'm kind of excited for that. And I am saying right now, as of now, it's early year. Like I said, this is my favorite filmmaking experience of the year. So I give Climax, like I said, B+. I I don't know if it really warrants the A minus territory because I just don't know if uh, it has too much going for it beyond, like, what we were talking about. But as it stands, as a piece of filmmaking, I had a great amount of fun watching it.
0: Alright, well, happy to hear you had a good time at the movies. I mean, it's been, you know, I saw a tweet not too long ago where it was like, at this point, last year we had gotten Black Panther and Game Night and, like, all these other films. It's was like, oh, yeah, you know, it hasn't been a terrible first couple of months of 2019, but it also hasn't been particularly memorable, but Regardless, uh, we're going to finish out the show here with one last review. This is The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which couldn't be any more different than, I think, from Climax, based on what I know of it. Sure. But Yeah. This is the feature directorial debut for Chiwetel Ejiofor, a famous actor, of course. He was also stars in the film as Triwell, a farmer in Malawi, Africa. struggling. He's struggling to keep his family afloat during a series of Bad Harvests. The film takes place in 2001. And I got to say, the real star of the film, it's not Ejiofor. It's actually the boy in the title, his son, William. And he's played by newcomer Maxwell Simba. So this film is based on the memoir of the real William of this story. This kid in 2001, he would sneak away from the fields, sneak into a school that he had been expelled from because they couldn't afford the fees, and he would just learn as much as he could about science because he was convinced that science could save his family it could su- save like the surrounding community from starvation so in this clip trywell and his son have actually just visited a nearby businessman who's kind of a family friend they want to use some of their savings to get an advance on a bunch of grain for an upcoming harvest but you know it doesn't turn out quite the way that they're expecting. You'll hear in a second how this guy reacts when they come to him for help.
1: This is a clip. The (laughs) Pope, the (laughs) Pope. That's what we used to call your father back then. The most honest man in all of lower market. We used to laugh at him because what good can come from an honest businessman? We used to laugh at him until he carried off the most beautiful woman in the whole place for farming.
2: <laughs> <Pretty much.
0: laughs> How is Agnes?
1: Can you help us, Daniel? <sighs> the rains driver well.
2: What can anybody do about his friends?
0: All right. That is from the new film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Again, that's now on Netflix. And, you know, in that clip, you can really hear the tired sadness and NGO for his voice there after that really long pause. And you can't see it, of course, but his facial expressions, they might as well tell the entire story of what he's feeling when this man deflects from helping his family. And, the film is mostly spoken in the native language of that region. It's not all English. Obviously, I chose a, an English clip, but you can hear there at times, they do speak English alongside their native one. And it illustrates one of the fascinating aspects of what I ultimately found to be one of my favorite new Netflix films in a, in a little bit. You get an honest, human, and authentic portrayal of modern life in Africa. It's not whitewashed. It's not emotionally manipulative. And it's appealing to something that just feels pretty true, I guess. You, you could just as easily see a similarly inspiring film set in an American food desert, is what I'm trying to say, where they treat the subjects with respect, where they, they treat these as human beings, right? And I, I could totally see that film, you know, an American food desert where a scrappy dreamer tries to defy the odds and save his community from peril and ingenuity. I'm also a big fan in this film of how Edu4 shows restraints as a director, you know, he lets his own character slide into the background when appropriate because it's really about Maxwell Simba's character. And he does such a good job with his acting here. He carries the film, you know, and yeah, this film, it's its touching, it's brutal, but it's also when it needs to be joyful when it comes to its real life characters. It reminded me of, in a good way, Queen of Cotway. From Disney. I don't know if you guys saw that, but that's another based on a true story film centered around a young African person who saves the day with their smarts. And like with that film, you know, some people will call it formulaic and maybe trying too hard. But yeah, I, f- I finished Boy Who Harnessed the Wind feeling something about a particular moment in our recent history that only a movie like this can do. And I was deeply inspired by it. And I felt like sharing this story with more people is kind of how you want to walk away from a movie. You want more people to see it. So I, I hope that's the case with this one. It's in limited release right now. Very, very limited release, but you can also check it out on Netflix. And I hope you guys do. It's it's pretty good. Uh, I think I, I'm about a a, a B B plus on it. Probably a pretty high B uh, on this film. So,
1: Yeah, I wanted to watch this one. I have, unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it this weekend, but I heard good things out of Sundance and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to see it soon.
0: I'm convinced. I'll give it a spin. Alright, sounds great. And with that, that's all the time we have this week for Cinemaholics. Next week, we're going to be talking about Gloria Bell and The Kid. I think that's all that's coming out, right, guys?
1: Uh, Isn't uh, Triple Front? Friend- oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there
0: you go. Oh, <laughs> triple Front, oh, that's one big one. Yeah, so Captain Marvel is going to be coming out next week. Keep your eyes out. <laughs> yeah. We're teasing uh,
1: are, for it. We obviously know that that's coming.
0: Out. <laughs> we'll be having a, a written review coming out next week on cinemaholics.com. And then we'll, of course, be talking about on the show with uh, hopefully with a couple of special guests. So definitely looking forward to that. And yes, we will. We will, of course, mention Gloria Bell at some point when we can. But all right. That's it for us this week. If you love Cinemaholics and you want it to continue, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, wherever you can review a podcast. Our Facebook and Twitter pages are in the show notes of this episode, along with our email, gmail.com. And yeah, great, great times, guys. I feel like the, the, I was—I came to this episode itching for, you know, reconciliation. Will, you came itching for a fight? I feel like we landed somewhere in between. I think so. All right. Well, from the internet, California, I am John O'Groni.
1: And from the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton.
0: And from Nashville, Corey Woodruff. Not the internet, for sure. See you next time.
2: No, we don't have internet out this way. It's mainly just a guy on a wheel that spins outside.